when the barcode was first introduced to society, it was used, at least as far as I recall, primarily at the grocery store. Remember that? It was a, just a great way to check out quickly. It had a barcode on every item, and you would walk by and scan it. Do you remember that there was a sizable Christian population that would not use that because they felt that the barcode was the mark of the beast? Remember that? <laughs> that, uh, of course, in Revelation it says, without the mark of the beast, you won't be able to buy or sell and uh, won't be able to get any food, and here's the first step, and the days have come. I don't know when that was introduced. I don't know how many years ago. I find it ironic, God must have a sense of humor, that we now use that same barcode to let you see the order of worship. Often what we think is not what is. And you and I need to be so riveted to the truth of Scripture that we are very cautious to make any, any declaration on anything else being true or this is that, unless God says it is. And that's one reason why we need the Word of God. Let's pray. Lord, open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things out of thy law, things of truth, of Christ. A forgiveness through the blood atonement of faith that results in righteousness. Of having free access to God because Jesus paved the way with his body for us. Thank you for the good news that says sinners like us can be reconciled to a God like you. Make this worship experience more than the norm as you speak to our hearts deeply, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. A lady was catching a flight out of Heathrow Airport in London, and the airline had complimentary cookies for every passenger. I, I believe it was a sleeve of six English shortbread cookies. So each passenger grabbed theirs, this lady grabbed hers, and then went to the gate and found a seat. She was sitting next to a man, and between them was just a, a small table as they were waiting to board the plane. Her cookies were sitting on that table. She decided to open up the package and take one of those cookies, and I don't know about you, but it's difficult to eat just one shortbread cookie, but she ate one. Things were fine until the man who was sitting next to her was lost in a book, reached down without looking up into her sleeve of cookies, grabbed a shortbread cookie and ate it. And she was appalled. It's unthinkable. He never said a word, never looked up. And she was ticked. Shocked, offended. But she cooled off after a few minutes until he did it again. Never looked up, just reached over, grabbed a cookie, ate it. Now she didn't quite know what to do. She wanted to tell him off. But she thought, no, maybe I better not. She tried to hold it in until he did it a third time. He not only took a cookie from the sleeve, but offered her one. Would you like a cookie? <laughs> she said, no, I don't want any of them. Stormed off. Went to find another seat, 
until they finally boarded the plane. When they boarded the plane, thankfully, the sinner was nowhere to be seen. She got situated in her seat. She opened up her purse, and there was her sleeve of cookies, never opened. (laughs) She was so upset that he took something that belonged to her until she realized it belonged to him. Psalm 24 and verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and its people belong to him. Now that's a life lesson we need to learn. And to help us with that life lesson, I want to draw your attention to Proverbs chapter 3. I hope you have your Bibles and you can turn to Proverbs 3, whether you're in our auditorium this morning or whether you're watching at home. Proverbs chapter 3, one of life's most important lessons. Now, rarely can you hear at a testimony meeting people sharing what God has done for them without them quoting the famous Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. You know it? Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. A familiar passage, but are you familiar with the context before it and the context after it? I find in my own Bible study, some of the most amazing amazing discoveries are when I began to reach out in the deeper context of a familiar portion of Scripture and see what it's really about. And I hope we can do that this morning. So let's look at the context before, and I'm just looking at verse 1. Who's the author of Proverbs? Solomon, the king of Israel. Who when he became king, it was said, he wrote thousands of Proverbs and thousands of songs. A very gifted uh, literary individual. And Solomon is talking to his son, if you want to get particular. Now Solomon had 700 rural uh, wives, um, 700 wives and 300 concubines. Many of the wives were uh, given to him as treaties with other nations. That's one of the ways that you would establish peace between two nations. The families would marry. But there weren't 700 nations around him. He just kept picking up wives. And yet it's difficult to find many sons of Solomon mentioned in the scripture, but Rehoboam is his main son who becomes king after him. So I envision Solomon sitting down with Rehoboam, or maybe a conference room full of sons, and saying, my son, don't forget my teaching. This is verse 1. By the way, it's very possible that Solomon's teaching came from his dad, who was King David, right? When I read the Proverbs, I'm thinking often I'm reading of King King David. In fact, there's one proverb where Solomon says, my dad said to me, and those are the words of David, don't forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your life many years and bring peace and prosperity. So here's fatherly advice to a son. I want you to take it to heart. That's what it means, keep the commands in your heart. 
And the benefits are incredible. Long life, peace, and prosperity. Now, we're going to say a little bit about that later on, but you have to remember that this is the genre of poetry. This is the literary style called poetry, and sometimes poetry uses figurative things to impress upon us spiritual truths. Prolonged life doesn't mean you'll live forever. Peace doesn't mean you won't have any conflict with your spouse or kids or the government. And prosperity doesn't mean you'll have everything you want or be filthy rich. But it does mean there's incredible blessing. So verse 3, Solomon says, let love and faithfulness never leave you. And I think he's referring to loyalty to himself. Never stop loving or being loyal to your dad and his words. Bind them around your neck like a beautiful necklace or a choker chain and write them on the tablet of your heart. Bind them Write them. Engrave them on your inner soul, for then you will have favor with me, Solomon says, and you'll have a great reputation in the sight of God and in the sight of men. So it's interesting that as he talks about his own counsel and its amazing benefits, he urges his son to give his heart to this. And he will realize almost unimaginable blessings flowing his way. Now, all of that precedes what we often know or start with, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Here's my first teaching that came from my father, David, and I want to reiterate to you. I want to emphasize to you. Here's life lesson number one. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Every word seems to be pregnant with meaning. And the best way to teach is to show the opposite. So trust in the Lord and don't lean on your own understanding. Why? Your understanding is deficient. I don't mean to offend you, but it is. It may be ten times better than mine, but yours is deficient. And so is mine. It's limited, amazingly so, extremely limited. Avoid following your better judgment. Well, to my way of thinking, isn't that a stupid phrase? <laughs> Don't lean on your own understanding. By the way, the word lean is a very positive word if you're referring to the Lord. Because trusting in the Lord, here's another synonym for trusting, lean on him. Lean on him. He's got strength you don't have. He's got wisdom you could never imagine. Put your life in his hands. Trust in him. Verse 6 says, in all your ways submit to him. There's another good synonym for this idea of trust. Trust, lean, and submit. Now when we get to the word submit, or as it is in many translations, acknowledge, verse 6, now you're beginning to talk about the activity. How do I trust in the Lord? What activity 
can I actually be involved in? What are the means by which I can lean upon the Lord? Well, this is how you do it. Submit to him in all your ways. That's the activity. That's what you and I can do. So the command is trust and lean. The activity, submit. If the word acknowledge, and by the way, the Hebrew word is a very large word that can probably does encompass submit and acknowledge. Acknowledge uh, speaks of prayer, doesn't it? The New Living Translation simply puts it this way. Seek his will in all that you do. And if we seek his will, he will show us our way. So to acknowledge him is to brief him, present to him, pass by him everything we are going to do. Submit all our ways to him and let him determine whether they're good or not. In submitting to him, he is Lord of all we do or say. Notice the word Lord in verse 5 is Yahweh. This is the sovereign God of the universe who's in complete control. So when we trust in the Lord with all our heart, we are leaning on him, not on our own understanding. And the way we do it is to submit all of our ways to him. And then here's... The promise. He will straighten your paths. Apparently, the translators are challenged a little bit here. The actual literal Hebrew simply says that he will make your paths. Period. He will make your paths. The idea of straight means correct. Crooked is wrong. Straight and true. From confusion to order. With purpose and not pointless. He will give you direction. He will make your path. Like a pioneer blazing the trail. He will make your path. Isn't that a wonderful promise? So you go from command or fatherly advice to a practical activity that you can do, submit every one of your ways to him for approval, and submit to him in everything you're doing. He's your Lord. And he promises to establish a path. Now, what is it to submit and trust and lean? I think one of the best illustrations is surgery. Have you ever had major surgery? Some of you have. There's a wonderful story of a woman who was having a heart transplant. And uh, she went through all the process of preparation, and now she was ready for surgery. They were about ready to give her the medicine that would put her out. And the surgeon came in and said, are you all right? And she grabbed his arm and said, my life is in your hands. <laughs> now, that's true every time a doctor operates. Anytime you go under anesthesia, that's true. Your life is in the hands of the doc, the anesthesiologist, a whole bunch of other people. But wouldn't it be different if this lady said, Doc, I believe that you can transplant my heart effectively. I'm convinced you can. I know you've done it a hundred times. But you're never going to operate on me. To say you believe something, but not to entrust yourself to that belief... Is that what the scripture is talking about? Trust means, okay, Lord, my life is in your hands. 
That's submission. That's what trust is. Now, look at verse 7 and 8. And I want you to know that this is a repeat of what we just read. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Again, don't lean on your own understanding. Don't be impressed with your wisdom. But fear the Lord and shun evil. That's the process. To fear the Lord is to trust in the Lord. To fear the Lord is to submit to the Lord. To fear the Lord is to lean on the Lord and not follow evil ways. And then the promise, verse 8. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. This next slide is intended to give you just a little bit of an appreciation for the intentional literary structure of much of Hebrew poetry. The poet takes pains to establish parallelism. And one line sometimes will be completed by the next or enlarged by the next or the same thing is said in different words. But I want you to know you've got a repetition here. The command to trust in the Lord is repeated in don't be wise in your own eyes. The idea of process, activity, submit to him is repeated with the phrase fear the Lord and shun evil. And then the promise, letter C, he'll make your straight path straight. Or in this case, he will indeed bless your body, nourish your bones. Poetry now. It doesn't mean that you'll always be healthy. Remember Job? Even David? What about Jesus? The scripture never promises that we will be healthy, wealthy, and wise if we follow Christ. Now, you will be more wise, obviously, and you will live longer than you might have otherwise, and, and you will have prosperity deep in the soul, as well as maybe prosperity with material things. But that's not the point. The point is, I will lead you into blessing. Trust me, and I will make your straight paths into rich blessing when you submit and lean and fear me. That's what it's all about. So you have to trust him where he tells you to go. You have to do what he tells you to do. And all of that for your good and his glory, even though it may not seem like it on the surface. That's the familiar passage. Okay, God, I'm ready. I'm ready to trust you. We say in our prayers, show me the path that brings blessing. Tell me where you want me to go. Tell me what you want me to do. Where do I start, Lord? I'm ready to go. And here's the first thing God says. Honor the Lord with all your wealth. Lord, I didn't think we were going in that direction. It's a command. Use your income to honor God. There is no greater indicator or demonstration of trust that we really trust the Lord than when we give to him our money. Oh, there's a whole hundred other ways that we can trust the Lord and should trust the Lord, but I love Solomon's practicality. He says, listen, you ready to trust the Lord? I'm all in. All right, here's the first step. Give him your checkbook. 
I have a friend who's uh, played professional baseball and did rather well and had some extra money. And when he came to Christ, he said, okay, Lord, I'm willing to give you my life, but there's several things that I, I won't do. I won't go to Africa as a missionary. Just want you to know that right at the beginning as I get saved. Number two, you can't take my family away from me. And number three, you can't have my money. <laughs> well, the Lord didn't send him from Africa and didn't take his kids away. He went straight for number three. And this man learned that everything he has belongs to God. The word honor is an interesting word, isn't it? In the Hebrew and in English, too, it means to show respect. It means admiration. It means to give someone priority or first place. Honor the Lord with your wealth or your income, your money. If you're golfing and you have the best score on a hole, you have the honors on the next tee. You get to go first. If you're a student and you do well and you're in the top of the class, you might be in the honors class. If there is a banquet, like there was in the Gospel of John at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus for Jesus, in his honor... You might be recognized for some special achievement. The banquet is in your honor. It's putting people first. Now, Psalm 104 tells us that God is clothed with honor and majesty, dignity, splendor. Psalm 96 says honor and majesty are before the Lord. Wherever he goes, he takes his honor with him. It's the field in which he lives. Of course, he's everywhere. But the honor of God always goes before him. It's the coat that he wears and the place that he dwells. God is to be honored. And when we come to the end of the Bible and the book of the Revelation, thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and blessing and what? Honor. What do you think we're going to be doing in heaven forever? We'll be perfect. And the music will be glorious. And we'll be singing, worthy is the lamb that was slain. And we will be giving him honor with our voices and with our time. He will have first place. Remember, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and all the people in it belong to him. Isn't it interesting that he says in verse 9, honor the Lord with your wealth? But it's not really yours, right? I mean, according to Psalm 24, everything belongs to God. Which means what I have is not my own. My wealth is something that God has given to me to manage. And one day, he'll ask to see the books. I'll have to give an account. My life is not my own. My time is not my own. My kids are not my own. My wife is not my own. My job is not my own. My health is not my own. My money is not my own. 
Gordon McDonald said one of the greatest truths missing in the American church today is simply this. Nothing that we have belongs to us. Nothing. But he's entrusted you with it, and that's why he calls it your trust, your stewardship. So how do we do it? That's the command, but what is the activity? It's called first fruits, or at least it was in that agrarian society. Honor the Lord with the first fruits of all your increase or your crops. 20 times first fruits is mentioned in the Bible. The Israelites had to give the first fruits of their harvest, whether it was olive oil or grain or wine. The, the cream of the crop, the first of the crop, went to God. The best of the crop. Priority. That's what first fruits is. Priority. And if you want to know how much it was, it's a very simple thing to deduce. Because in the Old Testament, the tithe reigned. There was a priestly tithe. There was a festival tithe. There was a welfare tithe. And when you put them all together, it came up to about 23% annually. And that was required giving. Makes me feel a little bit better when I realize that in America we have required giving and it comes up to at least 23%. <laughs> Called taxes. But I'm not giving to a theocracy. I'm giving to a government. Well, I'm not going to go into that. But the whole point is, first fruits is giving the best first. And a tenth is a good place to start. So priority, first fruits. <clears throat> Proportion, one-tenth. That's a good place to start. I think when you get into the New Testament, we begin to talk about grace giving. And that's at least 10%, probably more. But let's just use the 10% rule and make it as practical as possible. Tithe off the top. Write that down. In fact, I want to challenge everyone in this congregation, everyone listening to my voice. Are you trusting in the Lord? then you need to honor him with your wealth. And how do you do that? Tithe off the top. Oh, I can just hear some people now, like the Pharisee lawyer who wants to trick Jesus with a question. Oh, that's a very good thing, 10%. Are you talking about take-home pay or are you talking about gross? Are you talking about this tax? And I, I don't care. God might. I don't. Tithe off the top from your take-home pay. Period. It was John Maxwell who once said that if everyone in the church had their income reduced to poverty level but tithed, the church would have more than enough money to do everything it wants to do. But the reality is, according to George Bonner, that only 4% of the people tithe. We don't even have a tithe of tithers. Because 10% seems like too much for me to give of my money to, wait a minute, who does it belong to? And if you say, it belongs to me, I can see why you're getting upset when God puts his hand in your cookie sleeve. Because it shouldn't be there, according to you. What if, for the next three months, 
everyone connected with South Church, and even those who aren't, gave a tenth off the top of their take-home pay to God and his church, would we not see a change? Say, Pastor, you're always talking about money. I had one sermon last year on stewardship, and before that it was in 2014. Some of you weren't even born then. We don't talk that much about money. But I'm not here to talk to you about money for my own sake. I hope it's for your sake. Because did you notice the promise that is repeated throughout the scripture if we obey the Father's teaching, if we trust the Lord with all of our heart? And now notice the promise. It says, then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim brim over with new wine. I don't have a barn, you say. (laughs) This is only good for Brent Granger. I don't know if he has any vats, but he has barns and he'd love to have them filled to overflowing. Poetry, people. Poetry, it means abundant blessing. And the way in a society, a gregarian society, to talk about blessing is a full barn and vats overflowing. Wine and grain. The promise is amazing. You go to verse 2, and there is the promise of prolonged life and peace and prosperity. And verse 4 and verse 6 talk about health and straight paths. And now we're talking about bounty in verse 10 that overflows our capacity. Yeah, God will bless you more than you can take it in. That's the point. Whatever that blessing might be, it is rich. He is going to bless you with things far better than things. He's going to bless you with wonderful spiritual blessings far better than anything material. Right? So trust the Lord with all your heart and honor the Lord with all your wealth. That's lesson number one. Are you ready to trust him? Someone said, giving is not God's way of raising money. Giving is God's way of raising kids, children. Here's the secret. God doesn't need your money. Well, why is he asking for it then? You need to let loose of your grip. It's counterintuitive, I know. It's a divine paradox. It seems problematic and unproductive for us to give back to him what already, already belongs to him. And if I give it away, I'm going to have less. Right? I mean, that's the way we think. When I give something away, I deplete my resources. There was a godly Christian who was very faithful in his attendance at his local church, and he gave quite generously, and one day he came home to find his house on fire and all his possessions burned up, gone. Apparently he didn't have much in the bank, if anything, 
And a friend who came to console him at the fire said, you know, if you had not given all of that money to the church, you'd have something to start over again with. To which the wise man said, the only thing I have left is what I gave away. You can't take it with you. But you can send it forward. Your treasure. Oh, and it's so easy. It really is so easy. A private investigator once said, you show me your checkbook and you show me your bank account, you show me your credit card statement, and I will tell you what you love. <laughs> because money proves it. Wouldn't it be great if it said to God, the check, to him, to missionaries, to benevolent things, to godly churches. You can't take it with you, but you can send it forward. So when God says, honor me with your wealth, you're only upset because he's taking something that you thought belonged to you until you realize it belongs to him. Let's pray. Lord, there are so many portions of Scripture that deal with this thing called money. It cannot be our God. No one can serve two masters. But we can use the resources you send our way to honor you. In fact, it's the best demonstration that we really trust you. And while no one may check in on us to see how we're doing, we're only robbing ourselves. We're robbing God of glory and ourselves of blessing. Unless, of course, we don't believe your word. Help us, Lord, to die to self and to say with all of our heart, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and its people all belong to him. Take a few moments of prayer. Maybe take that challenge to tithe off the top of your take-home pay for the next three months if you haven't been doing that. And it will astound you what God will do on your behalf. Heavenly Father.